If you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to continue our walkthrough of Acts. I'm sure this is no surprise to you. We're going to be in these ten verses for two weeks. We're going to split them up into uh, five verses each. And uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 42. It sounds like this. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging and urging that the sermon they just delivered in the synagogue a moment ago might be spoken to them the very next Sabbath. We want to invite our friends, our family, our loved ones. They need to hear this. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes, so I love how the NASB translates that, followed Paul and Barnabas. (laughs) Paul meaning small, and Barnabas meaning son of encouragement. Speaking to them and urging them to continue in the grace The next Sabbath, nearly the entire city had assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by small Paul and were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that you understood our opinions and our personal convictions and our preferred interpretations of the word of God. Is that what it says? No. It was was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. This is only one of two places you'll see the word eternal life in Acts. We are turning to the Gentiles. In fact, I think it was Isaiah that said, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light unto the Gentiles, that you may bring salvations to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying, there it is again, the opinions of man. No, the word of the Lord. And as many has been, oh, and I love this, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, that is a piece of doctrinal meat that we will save for next week because we'll spend most of our time on it. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women. It always starts with the women. Can I get an amen on that? If there's trouble, no, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. So they incited, this is actually very humorous, but we'll save it for next week. Devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city to instigate persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district and they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against these people. And they went to Iconium and the disciples were continually filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Before we get started, let's ask that the Holy Spirit be our teacher because you do not need to hear from me. We need to hear from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for the opportunity, the blessed opportunity to open your word. Father, I confess my sins always and openly before these people, and I am so thankful that you will cleanse me of all unrighteousness. I thank you that you wrote that to believers, because we desperately need to always wash our feet, so thankful that our bodies have been washed. We thank you for our eternal security. But we acknowledge our ever-present need to repent so that our relationship with you will be untethered. Father, give me wisdom. Help me to remember what I studied. 
Give me wit, give me humor, give me seriousness, whatever you deem necessary. But above all else, Lord, help me to speak the truth. May the meaning of this text be our sermon. And Father, we request one thing, one gift, one gift today. And Lord, I think, I think we have chosen wisely. Give us Christ. Not the culture around Christ. Give us Christ. Have your Holy Spirit teach, Lord. And I pray this and I ask this in your Son's precious and holy name. And if you're awake this morning, say something. All right. Confrontation. Confrontation. How many here wake up in the morning and say, yes? Yes, today I will have to confront someone and it will cause division. And you jump out, out of bed and your family says, man, you're in, a, you're in a good mood. What's going on? Well, I'm glad you asked because today I get to confront someone and cause division and I will become the object of all that is wrong in their life and they're going to take it out on me. Joy be to my life. How many here ever feel that way? We call that the pastorate, all right? No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Not really. But let's move forward, all right? That being said, in an unusual way, that is exactly what we are called to do, not in our behavior, not with our tone, and not with our, our personalities, but this is what is, we are to do with the gospel and the truth of God's word. I don't know if you've been noticing in our study through the book of Acts and really the entire word of God from day one, and I mean day one, and I mean day one of Jesus' life all the way down to the manger, his boyhood, his ministry, his message, his death, his resurrection, Pentecost, the church, the gospel, and all the way into today right now. Well, many great things are happening in the Word of God. People are being saved. The elect are coming to God. Sins are being forgiven. But at the end of the day, the true gospel will leave in its path division. It just will. Now, I'm not talking about us being jerks. I'm not talking about us not using discernment and being full of the Holy Spirit. We ought to not be what is offensive of the gospel. The gospel itself ought to be offensive because it is something that challenges our need to repent of our sins. I'm also not talking about division within the church. The gospel unifies the church, even in the midst of differences. All of us are going to have discernible and preferential discernments within the freedom of the word of God. And we're going to fall on different areas on discernible decisions. And when that happens, the gospel ought to trump those differences and unite the body of Christ. Amen, church? That person who is slightly different from you and their acceptable discernment is not your enemy nor mine. The gospel unifies, but boy, oh boy, does it cause division with those who accept the gospel and those who reject the gospel. 
Look at how the early church was persecuted, martyred, beaten, run out of town. And we will see the very same thing in the passage today. And if we, treat, if we teach the true gospel, we will, by the way, we will see that to some measure in our day and age as well. So what are we to do? Well, unfortunately, one of the responses of the contemporary church is to try and take the offense out of the gospel. Let's take the offense out of the gospel. We'll water it down. We'll reconstruct it to be socially relevant to what our culture demands. We make it, here it is, we make it palatable to us sinners. We say, Jesus has come to make us happy. You don't need to worry about your sin. You don't have to repent. My friends, the reason many churches today are not at odds with those who reject the gospel right now is because we are no longer proclaiming the gospel. Now, with that being said, or at least we are avoiding it and concentrating on the acceptable subject matter within the Bible. It was Augustine who said this. Augustine said this. If you believe what you like in the Bible, but you reject what you don't like in the Bible, it is not the Bible you believe, but yourself. Fortunately, in Grand Rapids, we have no issue with that in the church. Amen? I don't. No, I'm teasing. We all do. Jesus said this about the gospel. This is Jesus talking about the gospel. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but the sword. By the way, the sword causes division, all right? And then he unpacks it. I came to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and and daughter-in-laws against her mother-in-law. That just seems more natural, doesn't it, if you think about it? It's like, Lord, that division was here before the gospel. The gospel was here before that, okay? And, And a man's enemies will be members of their own household. My friends, the true gospel is divisive. But let me say it another way. The gospel is good news. But the good news will divide people because it confronts us with our sins. It will either be accepted or it will be hated. It will be rejected. Today is the first of two parts. We're going to spend our whole time in verses 42 through 47 which is packed with practical application for our hearts today, but we will ultimately set up verses 48 through 52, which is packed with deep doctrinal application on salvation and evangelism. So what we're going to do is we are going to set the dinner table this week with application so that when we lay the piece of deep doctrinal meat on it next week, we will be well prepared. So with that being said, grab this. Many of the Jews and the God-fearing and or proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. I want you to really focus in on the words God-fearing and proselytes there. All right? It almost seems redundant when you read it in, in the, this, this translation here. Of course they're God-fearing, otherwise they would not be proselytes. But this is actually two groups under one name. It is a careful detail that will be missed if we just read it casually. These three words, God-fearing, proselytes, are used to describe one group made up of two parties. Are you following me? There are two parties that are under the umbrella of one group. For example, if I said the word, over there are the Detroit Lions, 
What are some words you would use to describe the Detroit Lions? And you can only use positive thoughts, all right? Okay, you can go negative. What are some words that come up to your mind? Talk to me. Football, what's that? Losers, Losers yes. Rebuilding constantly. This year is going to be different, brother. This year is going to be different. That's insanity, isn't it? Anyone else? Same old lions. Now, with that being said, because we are generous Baptists, full of love, let's move forward, all right? With that being said, what we have here, you could describe the, 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 the Detroit Lions as offense and defense, but under one name. That's what we got here. Let me unpack this for you. Here's the first group. In fact, you'll find it in verse 16, part B of this very chapter, and it is that of God-fears. God-fears. God-fears are Gentiles who are not yet full proselytes, all right, of Judaism, meaning that God fears they worshipped Israel's God, they participated in Jewish life in the synagogue, but they had not yet become full Gentile proselytes. Which means, by the way, the word proselyte means they had not, uh, these God-fears had not yet taken the final step of being baptized at this time, which was rejection of all of their Gentile culture and, and customs, leaving that behind, and receiving the physical mark of circumcision within the covenant, Old Testament covenant. So these are people who converted to Judaism and got circumcised and were baptized into Judaism. Edwards, Bach, and Barrett talk about that. In fact, an example of this is Cornelius the centurion. He was a God-fearer who had not yet taken the mark of circumcision, but had a good reputation with the Jews. We find that in Acts chapter 10 verse 1. And they're all through the New Testament. Now, the second group here is found in verse 43, which is the word proselytes, which is the final step of what a God-fearer would do. These are Gentiles who have taken the final step. They've been baptized out of their culture, and they are of the Jewish faith, received the mark of circumcision, and identified with the Old Testament covenant of God. Now, why make this distinction? Why does this matter? Because studying matters. Why does it matter that this one group of God-fearing and or proselytes is actually made up of two ten Gentile groups? Some circumcised, some not. Because the some not... Grab that. The sum not is a very important detail to Israel in understanding this text. So what I want you to grab here, above all else, is grab that top one, God fears, like Cornelius. Grab that one and just hold on to it because I'm going to need you to throw it into the text in just a little bit here. And it will pop what is going on here. And then, once we understand the context of this time and age, we can accurately harvest it and apply it in our lives today. So with that being said, hold on to God fears. Now look at this. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. You see, it's not that they were opposed to Gentiles coming to the Jewish faith. They're not opposed to that. Or participating in Judaism. The synagogue already had Gentile proselytes described up there. Jews were fine with Gentiles connecting to God through through strict adherence to Judaism, i.e. circumcision law, baptism ritual. What they did not like was Paul and Barnabas telling this second group of God-fears, all right, who were not yet full proselytes, that they can be included absent from full conversion to Judaism, circumcision, all of that stuff. They didn't like that through Jesus Christ alone message. 
You following here? Let me summarize this. Here it is. The Jews resented the fact that salvation was being made available to the Gentiles who did not adhere to strict covenant ritual and legalistic expectations. Now here's where the, the rubber really hits the road and we get the rub here. Hear this. Their zeal for the Old Testament covenant, and who can blame them, but their zeal for the Old Testament covenant blinded them from seeing the whole promise of God. I want you to grab that. Grab that right there. Their passion in one area of Scripture, circumcision, law, covenant, their passion for one area in Scripture blinded them from seeing and participating in the whole plan of God found in the same Scriptures. Well, the subject of this text is salvation to God-fears and ultimately Gentiles. The application can cross into other subjects as well. One good old Lutheran who I loved, R.C. Linsky, says this. He sheds more light. He says this. This is a dislike from the established members of the synagogue. Hence, you see the words up there. Um, uh, But when the Jews uh, saw the crowds, we got that highlighted here. This is a dislike from the established members of the synagogue who were unwilling to let large numbers of outsiders suddenly change, come and change the way they do synagogues. Synagogue, even if, here's the catcher, here's the catcher, even if scripture even supported these changes. I want to say this again slowly because that's a lot up there and I just want to boil it down. Okay, And I'm not saying it slowly because you won't understand if I say it quickly. But what I want you to do is as I say this, I want you to apply it at the same time. What I'm about to say, I want you to hear with the backdrop of the contemporary church today, us. When you hear these words, I want you to see the church as well in the application. Established members of the assembly... Established members of the assembly were unwilling to let outsiders come in and change the way they do things, even if there is scripture for it or or scripture allowed for it. So here's the question. Do we ever ignore portions of the Bible in order to maintain a preferred interpretation of it? I mean, Baptists don't. We know that, right? Of course we do. That we are, oh, and by the way, that we are willing to attack others over it. We will attack to maintain our preferred interpretation. This is getting a little close to a nerve here. I want you to see the irony here. Established members of the assembly who claim biblical authority will ignore portions of the Bible in order to elevate preferred interpretation. Wow. This is called cherry-picking hermeneutics or exegesis. Let me ask you a question, and and I, I want you to answer just to see if you're still tracking with me. Does this happen in the church today? Of course it does. Here's some. Music, divorce, Bible versions, alcohol, complementarianism, moral purity, social issues, Calvinism, Arminianism, end times, ecclesiology. Oh, here's something. The entire word of God we do this with. We will cherry pick. In fact, here's one that's not controversial at all. A woman's role in the church. How many are thankful? Not controversial. Amen? Just a peaceful road with no potholes in it. 
This week I went to a pastor's conference or meeting where we, we discussed the subject of complementarianism, which is a fancy word for gender roles within the church and home. This is a clear example of how oftentimes we will elevate one portion of Scripture um, from another in order to get our desired outcome. And I listened to multiple views and talking as they talked past one another in a benevolent way, but multiple views going on, and it was really almost a, a biblical or scriptural tug of war based on where they wanted to go. Now, some contend that a woman's role in ministry and in the church is to sit silent and just knit. And all of God's people, no, we'll stop there, all right? And I couldn't help but, you see, I, I couldn't help but think of Laura Christian, who literally knits during Bible study. We pray for her heart daily, all right, that she would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And every time I see her knitting, I'm like, is that for me? And her answer is no. So again, you can see probably not even a candidate for salvation, all right? Now, with that being said, some will look at the Word of God and say a woman's role is to just sit, be silent, and knit. But to hold such an interpretation, as sincere as it may be in our hearts, overlooks or redefines a great deal of Scripture about women providing teaching and ministry, both in the Old Testament and, here's one, in the New Testament church, that, by the way, the Holy Spirit gives in His Word without even a hint of disapproval. I think of Deborah and Holdon, Priscilla and the daughters of Philip and Eutyche, Syndike, Phoebe and many other women. Now conversely, because there's always two sides to this kind of issue, at the same time there are those who are quick to overlook or ignore the clear teaching of scripture that clearly teaches male leadership in the home, marriage and church. First Timothy, Titus, the Pauline epistles, elders, pastors, husbands. So what are we to do? Are we, ignore, are we to ignore the clear examples of women providing teaching and ministry? Or are we to elevate those examples and throw away what the Bible says about male leadership? And here's something, and then attack one another in the hopes that the kingdom of God will only grow through our preferred hill of biblical authority. So what is the answer? I don't know. I'm not going to give it to you. No, I do. I, there is actually an answer here. And the answer is scripture, but I need to go deeper than that, right? So let's define that. We must submit ourselves to a position. Yeah, that's right here. We must submit ourselves to a position that fully acknowledges all strands of biblical teaching and see them collectively, not selectively, but collectively as the standard of God's will for our life and our church. Now you may say, I think you're a little bit on the rabbit trail. This is about salvation. I agree, but I also disagree. This is a teachable moment about our religious hearts. A teachable moment of our religious hearts. That while the context is here of that salvation, and we will go back to that context because we need the text to be the meaning of the message. While the context here is about salvation of a Gentile God-fearer who is not fully converted to Judaism, it serves as a reminder to sub humbly submit our preferred positions to the whole teaching of God's word. By the way, regardless of the subject. Here the subject is salvation. But it is, it is not the only subject that has been abused by selective teaching. Which brings us back to Augustine, who beautifully said, if you believe what you like in the Bible and reject what you don't like, it is not the Bible you believe, but yourself. Push your heart into that statement. 
You see, it's not like the Gentiles being saved outside of the covenant is a new idea to Judaism. This is not a new concept. They just did not like it. It's not new. In fact, Paul is going to look at them in, in order to highlight that they have a preferred interpretation and says, hey, you know, you guys ought to know this. It says in Isaiah, I have placed you as a, a light to the, to the what church? Do you see it there? Gentiles, that you may bring what? Talk to me, church. Salvation to the ends of the earth. This is Isaiah 49, verse 6. He's looking at him and saying, this isn't new. This is right there. In fact, not only is it right there, but it's in other places as well. You can find it in Isaiah chapter 42, 1 and 42, verse 6, and Acts 26, 22 through 23, and on and on and on and on we go. It's there. You just got to look at it, but you don't like it, so you come over here. Here's my point. The whole word of God Oh, let me, let me move up here a minute. This is hardly a new teaching in the Old Testament. Their narrow-minded view of salvation as exclusively Jewish or fully converted to Judaism is foreign even in the Old Testament teachings. Here's my point. The whole word of God, with its complete considerations on all subjects, is to be our authority. It is not to be denied. It is not to be rationalized. It is not to be gutted. It is not to be formed to our preferred positions because at the end of the day, it is not what we like or what makes us comfortable that determines what is true. It is the whole counsel of God. Thus saith the Lord is truth. Amen? That's our authority. I am not... God help you if I am your sole authority. Can I get a witness on that? No, come on. Show a little grace, all right? So with that being said, we need a little more room on the screen. So we got a new feature this week, which is slowly to erase and make some room. And I don't know about you, but my OCD is ringing on all 10 levels right now. It just makes me want to fidget a little bit. But there, we made some space. With that being said, don't laugh at my shortcomings. You may. So what do the Jews do in the synagogue? You ever notice, you can read, we're not Israel, by the way, okay? But do you ever notice that the man of heart is pretty consistent regardless of the time period? Does anyone else see that at all? You read the word of God and it's not you. It's like 4,000 years old or 2,000 years old and you're like... That is me, man. I see that in my own life. The heart of man is incapable of improving upon his spiritual condition outside of the work of God. Amen? We can see this in our own lives. So what do these Jewish people, highlighted in the, in the orange there, who aren't, don't like these changes, what do they do? Well, they do the same thing we do today. Take a look at this. They began con- contradicting the things spoken To Paul. Now the word contradicting here is written in the imperfect tense, meaning they are constantly, often, and continually speaking against anything Paul says. Paul could have said, the sky is blue today. And they would have said what, church? It's orange. Anyone with half a mind could see that. They speak against anything Paul says. By the way, all week long, drumming and whipping up support. Ten in Hell makes a great observation here when he says this. The resistance is openly expressed in personal attacks. Grab that. How many here, with a raise of hand, have ever been personally attacked? Anyone at all? Seriously? Seven of you? Wow, what kind of utopia do you live in, all right? 
personal attacks that try to undermine and discredit Paul's teaching in the assembly. No matter what Paul and or Barnabas says, it was attacked and it was discredited, which brings up a very, very practical point here that I want to lay in front of you. It's just practical stuff here, and it is huge. And oh, how I wish I would have learned this early in my ministry. This one's for free. Now, I get paid weekly. I probably should be paid more to share this one with you, all right? But I'm going to give it to you for free if you just sign up for our special church program. No, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I can get you in the ground level of a very great financial investment, all right? You've never heard. It kind of looks like a pyramid, but it's not. In fact, we gave it a different name, so now it's not. I'm sorry. Rabbit trail. Let's move forward. This one's for free. And since we have a lot of Dutch people here, you're welcome. Here it is. There are times when people will have a vested interest in misunderstanding you. There are times when people that we see here in the context will have a benefit in purposely not understanding you. They want to misunderstand you. They seek to misunderstand you. They seek to misinterpret. They seek to misconstrue, whatever that word is, misconstrue what you say. Because here it is. It gives them reasoning to excuse their animosity. It gives them reasoning to justify their agenda and absolve any sin in the attack. Here I want to give you just some practical advice here. And we'll see it in this text here. Do not waste your time trying to chase down those who are vested interest in misunderstanding or contradicting you. They have a vested interest in you. Just love them, speak the truth, and let how you live in love overpower what they say. Because here it is, they don't want it to be resolved. There is no benefit in it resolving. It's not what they want. I have someone here not here, who does not attend here anymore, who constantly tells people negative things about me. I know, you can barely wrap your brain around that. They constantly tell people negative things about me. They will not answer my phone calls. They will not talk to me. They will not return my messages. But they will talk to anyone, everyone else, in the imperfect tense. They'll text, they'll phone call, they'll social media, And I have concluded that this person has a vested interest in being at odds with me in order to excuse their behavior or justify the anger they are experiencing in their lives. So I have decided not to chase this person, but to pray for them, to love them when I have opportunities, to live my life in a way that is not consistent with what they say. One time, and I'm just being transparent with you up here, and I think we've all experienced this to some level or not. One time someone came up to me and they said, said, this person says this about you, and I said, I know, I know. May I ask you a question? Have you ever seen me do these things? And they said, no. I said, is what they say consistent with your experience with me? And they said, no. I said, then you tell that person, I said, hello, and you tell them I love them. Now, with all that in mind, while I know the principle here can be applied to many subjects, the scripture, all right, in scripture, it's important to acknowledge the specific context here, which is salvation. Now, we're coming right back to the specific context. 
And when you speak against or reject God's whole plan for salvation, which is the context here, which is i.e. through Jesus Christ alone, through faith, not of works, grace, that, that when you speak against that, that will in and of itself lead to blasphemy because you have to speak against Jesus Christ in order to do that. You see, when a person speaks evil about Christ, they engage in blasphemy. And when you speak evil about Jesus Christ, you will judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life because absent from faith in the Son of the living God, Jesus Christ, by which there is no no other name salvation can be found if you reject Christ there is no salvation allow me to be dogmatic and clear on, on teaching of the whole word of God no true believer no true believer no true believer could ever be guilty of speaking evil of Jesus not after what he's done for us to be willing To speak evil of Jesus is to not know his salvation, period. So what are we to do with all this application? What are we to do when people have hearts that ignore Scripture in order to highlight their preferred places? Who have a vested interest in not understanding because they need to excuse their agenda or simply speak evil about our Lord? Are we to run around with our heads cut off, spending all of our emotional and intellectual energy trying to fix every individual issue? Let me tell you, that is exactly what Satan wants us to do. What is to be our response? I would contend our response is to be the same as Paul and Barnabas. And here it is. To hear the word of the Lord. To, to have the word of God spoken to us. My friends, to answer all of these practical conflicts of, of both faith, salvation, and confrontation is to teach the word of God and the word of God alone. My friends, the agent of change is always rooted in the teaching of God's word, not the personality or gifts of people. My friends, sal- sanctification comes through teaching the word of God. Salvation comes from teaching the word of God. And these people's lives were turned upside down and the church will explode in growth and, pe- and people are demanding more of the word, not because of the personality of Paul, not because of Barnabas, but because they were offering a God, or, or by the way, or not because they were offering a gospel of no offense, not because they were trying to balance everyone's preferred positions, but rather because of the power of God's word. My friends and family, may we have ears to hear and may our hearts not be hardened. May we have fertile soil of our hearts and hear this today. Let me make it clear. Programs in the church are not the answer. Policies are not the answer. And by the way, I am not the answer to what this church needs. The power of God does not need my personality or my teaching or my gifts. This church does not need a single fiber of Brett Boomsma to prevail against the gates of hell. What the church needs is to faithfully proclaim the scriptures in 
which I am not worthy to to change its pages. Oh, may the Holy Spirit press upon our hearts today. Deliverance is not found in self-esteem. Redemption is not claimed in political party. Salvation is not given in social issues. Holiness is not found in our happiness, but rather all of these things are resolved in how faithfully we proclaim the word of God alone. It's everything. It's everything. It's everything. Spurgeon said something like this, and I modernized it, but this was the meat of what he said. If you stand up to see what you can do, it would be in your wisdom to sit down quickly. But if you stand up to prove what an almighty Lord and his word can do, then you stand until you have strength no more. There is a lot of application this week as we set the table for next week. Let us not forget. May all of God's collective word be our authority. May the teaching of it be a light and lamp unto our feet. And may we remember that sometimes people will just have a vested interest in not understanding us. Just let our love and our life answer those things. Don't spend all your time chasing down the rabbits. Spend your time chasing Christ and rest in the peace of knowing his pleasure, not in everyone else's. Next week, we will study. Grab this. We're almost done. Grab this. Next week, I invite you back. We study the absolute sovereign predestination of a person's soul to salvation. Bring a sharp knife. The elect of God. And how it makes us responsible to share the gospel. Talk about a piece of meat. The need for setting a table this week to prepare our hearts to allow God's word to be our authority, not just our favorite spots. Next week, prepare to submit your mind, your heart, and your intellect to the elect of God and why it calls us to share the gospel. I love you guys. Gracious Heavenly Father, dismiss us with your blessing. Father, we readily confess that we cannot know the living word, your Son, if we are ignorant of the written word, your Bible. Father, it is the meat we eat, it is the milk we drink, it is the water that satisfies. May we long to know you through this book. Not our experiences, not our appetites, not our agenda. Your word, your breath. Father, bless these people. They belong to you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I love you guys. You are dismissed.